Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Psalm 45, um, from verse 1 to 7 and 10 to uh, 15. I'm going to read in Mandarin. 我心里永出美词，我论到我为王所做的事，我的手头是快手笔。你比世人更美，在你嘴里满有恩惠，所以神赐福给你，直到永远。大能者啊，愿你腰间佩刀，大有荣耀和威严。Next，为真理谦卑
one of the things that we have the opportunity to do in looking at these psalms is to remember that just as they once longed for the coming of their Messiah, so do we also, at this point, long for his return. And we can look at the psalms, and we can take a look at all the things that were prophesied about Jesus, and we can look at those, the, the, um, the fulfillment of these prophecies as God keeping his word, as God fulfilling that which he said he would do. And so just as they longed for and eventually got to see God's faithfulness on display, so too can we, as we long for the coming and the return of the Messiah, also know that the promises of God are true and that he will fulfill them and that one day Jesus will return. That is the power of Advent. So with that in mind, what we want to take a look at today is we want to take a look at what this psalm, Psalm 45, has to tell us about the king for whom we long about the king who has come and the one who is going to return. And so to do that, let's take a look at what Psalm 45 has to tell us about this king being a king of humble power, a king of kings, a king of condescension, and a king of love. All right, let's look at those four things. So first, he's a king of humble power. So this entire psalm uh, is uh, speaking of a royal wedding where a king and uh, the soon-to-be queen are getting married. And this is a song celebrating that marriage. Now, today, of course, when we think about weddings, we recognize them to be very big deals, right? It's, in fact, one of the very few times where we have massive celebrations, massive parties, and nearly every culture on the planet uh, does the same. And this would have been very much in, uh, the same in ancient times. These weddings would have been huge deals. But then on top of that, on top of marriage and, and uh, the ceremony being a big deal, this is also the marriage of a king. This is a, a celebration of one who sits on the Davidic line, so to speak. Those who uh, were part of the line of David. And that line is of note because that was a throne that God promised that there would be a king who would reign forever who sits upon that throne. And so, all that just to say, Psalm 45 is reflecting a very big deal ceremony. Now, in the psalm, we see some pretty striking and uh, evocative imagery presented of both the king and the bride. In the first half, we see a description of the king. In verse 3, it says this. Let me uh, reread that for us. Verse 3 says, Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourselves with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall down beneath your feet. In other words, this king, being described here, is a mighty, awe-inspiring warrior king who should not be taken lightly at all. Now, this would have been a, a very common uh, thing to say about your king in the ancient Near East. Right? Everybody wanted mighty warrior kings. And so that part of the psalm is actually not that unique to what we would see more broadly. Right? Trying to uh, present a mighty, powerful ruler. But then we see something quite interesting in verse 4. Something that's pretty unique to uh, what would have been understood in the, the ancient Near East at the time. Verse 4 says... In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. So here's what's interesting about the king being presented here. The king is a mighty king, a force to be reckoned with. But then we see a bit of a shift from uh, him not only being a king of power, but also 
a king, committed to truth, who's humble, and who loves what is righteous and just. In many ways, this makes this king quite unique because what you see here is this powerful, mighty king using all of his authority for that which is righteous, that which is humble, that which is true. And this would have been pretty unique. At the time, it wouldn't necessarily have been something you would want people to know about your king. You want your king to be mighty and powerful, to evoke some kind of measure of fear. But the idea of that king also being humble and gracious, maybe even meek, would have been pretty rare. You wanted a fighter as a king. Now that, I think, probably resonates maybe a little bit too much with us today. I think many of us, when we think about leaders, especially political leaders like a king, we have such a low bar for what is deemed sufficient in the character of many of these leaders, right? Because we're often satisfied with a fighter, someone who's going to fight for my position or fight for what is good for me, someone to be reckoned with. And I also find it uh, fascinating that as I think about it in that way, we so often believe that we're so evolved or enlightened compared to these ancient people in modern times. But all we've really done is discovered new ways to be the same as them, just in different kinds of ways. I mean, not unlike the ancient Near East, we are not that concerned about our leaders. We might say we are, but we're really not that concerned about our leaders being humble or gracious or meek. We just want a fighter. And as a result, for many of us, it's exhausting to hear about the consequences that come with those kinds of leaders. Because so often that kind of leader is going to come with hypocrisy, some kind of scandal, some kind of immorality. It happens all the time. And in recent days, it's happening on the full political spectrum. And the coverage of it has just become white noise because it's so common. It seems comical how often our leaders, right, those who are supposed to fight for us, are racked up in scandal. And even if they don't have scandal behind them, behind them So often, they're nonetheless arrogant, so self-assured, full of like vitriolic hate for those who think differently than them. There's nothing. They are uh, so often nothing like the kind of character that we're seeing, the kind of leadership that we're seeing described in this kind of king. But here we are presented with a kind of king, I recognize that we can't comprehend, a king full of mighty power but also true honor, Which then brings us, because we can't often think about it, it does point us now to consider, well then what exactly are we supposed to do with this ideal leader? If we know that we're not ever really going to experience it, then what's this psalm actually describing? Well, that brings us secondly to the king being described here as being a king of kings. Let me explain to you what I mean. Look at some very interesting language in verses 5 through 7. So it says, Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations... A fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oils of joy. All right, here's what's, if you're tracking along with what's going on in the psalm, it's actually a little bit confusing because at first it sounded like we were describing a king in Israel. Right? Someone who was sitting upon the Davidic line, right? the, the, the throne of David. But now, in that section, that king is being called God. What is that exactly? I mean, if you know anything about ancient Israel, 
They certainly would have bristled at the idea that a man, any man, would be divine, which again would have been pretty unique for many of their time. They were a people, they were a monotheistic people that were surrounded by polytheistic people. And it, wouldn't been, it would not have been weird for people like the Egyptians, for example, to see their king as a god. It would have been very weird for the people of Israel to treat their king as god. And yet here in the psalm, the king is being called god. So if that's the case, what's going on here? Well, biblical commentators, they point out that this psalm again, is speaking of the Davidic line, the throne of David, which was a throne established by God through a covenant with David. And David and his line were mere representatives of the true king, the true throne, the throne of God himself. In many ways, what's being described here is these kings, they were essentially vassal kings. They were stewards of a throne. They were not the true king. And so this psalm is actually speaking of the true king. And who then is that true king? Well, here's where Hebrews 1 uh, comes in. And here's what I find amazing. Is that in Hebrews 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews, hundreds of years after the psalm was written, even after Jesus has uh, already ascended, um, the, the, Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this. And this is going to be essentially the ongoing theme. The writer of Hebrews says that That psalm is actually about Jesus. Listen to what it says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven, so he became as much a superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Then in verse 8, it says, And listen for what might sound familiar. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above many companions by anointing you with a full oil of joy. Here's what's fascinating. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45. Why? Because this king, a king of great majesty and power, but of also great humility and meekness, is pointing to Jesus Christ, the one who forever rules and reigns and sits upon the throne of David, a throne that lasts forever. And here's why that matters. Is first, it's at least worth stating, that there are some who still question whether or not the Bible actually teaches that Jesus was God. But what we're seeing here is that the author of Hebrews absolutely is making it clear that the God of Psalm 45, the one uh, that verse 17 later on would say that the nations will praise you forever and ever, is Jesus himself. The Bible consistently presents Jesus as God incarnate. But also consider the context of Hebrews. The entire book of Hebrews is describing the extent to which Jesus is greater than anyone that's come before, greater than the angels, greater than anything, that nothing compares to him. No one is as powerful as him. No one sits upon a throne like he does. And as the other uh, New Testament writers describe him, that he is the king of all kings. 
And so with that said, right, so Jesus here, Psalm 45, about Jesus. He's the king above all kings, God himself. It's at least then worth noting from based on this, what we celebrate this season. Because how then does this king come? How might we expect a king of such grandeur, such power to arrive if he were to come? I mean, would we not expect a king of such splendor and majesty do his name to come with some kind of exercise of power to show how truly in control and above all things he truly is? Of course, we know, though, that's not what we see in the Christmas story. We do, we, that's not what we see in this Advent season celebrating the coming of this king because not only is this king, Jesus, a king of kings, he's also a king who condescends. You know, when the king of king comes, again, he doesn't come to the palaces of kings and high priests. He's not born into a family of riches and wealth and power. When this king comes, he doesn't come with triumphant victory or parading the grandeur of his majesty. Instead, this king of kings, this lord of lords, comes in poverty to a poor teenage girl and her carpenter husband. He comes and lives the majority of his life in obscurity and humility. He's born in a manger in a marginalized land that no one thought much of. And even more so, within that land, he comes from a region that was mocked as insignificant. Maybe you recall someone once saying, what good could come from Nazareth? No one cared about this land, and yet it's there that this king decides to come. And this is what I mean when I say that the king condescends. Not in the sense of being condescending in a negative sense, but rather in the sense of lowering himself. That the eternal, boundless king steps into time and space. The, the mighty king makes himself fragile and vulnerable. The one of great heavenly riches takes on poverty. The king who rules a mighty kingdom becomes oppressed under an oppressive regime. The creator becomes a creature. And he does so in order that we are time-bound, in our time-bound, fragile, vulnerable reality, that we might know him and experience him. I mean, without such condescension, we could not know him, see him, experience him. And again, consider what uh, verse 3 just said of Hebrews 1. It says that the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You know what that reminds me of? I think about this all the time. There's a story in the Old Testament... Uh, particularly uh, found in um, Exodus 33. We're told in that story that God, he appeared and he spoke to Moses through uh, the kind of glory cloud. We don't really know what that cloud was. All we know is that God shows up and God speaks to Moses through that cloud. And what's interesting is that in uh, verse 11 of Exodus 33, that conversation that God has with Moses is described as a face-to-face conversation, which is interesting. Yet Moses knew at the time that God was obviously speaking to him through some veiled medium, right? There was a cloud that was there. Moses knew he wasn't really seeing God face to face. And so then later in verse, seven, or verse 18, Moses begs God and he says, God, show me your glory. It's clear that Moses desperately wanted to truly see God the glory of God. 
But it wasn't possible because, listen to God's response. Let me just read this for you. So in verse 20 of that chapter, God says, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. But then later on, God says, When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Here's what's profound. That the glory that Moses could not look upon, the glory of God that would have killed him, here is where it matters that the king condescends because Hebrews just told us that Jesus is that glory in human form. Jesus is the cleft of the rock that protects us, making the presence of God accessible to us. Jesus is that glory. Thanks be to God. Now here's the confrontation that I think this presents for us. We might hear this and be, that's beautiful. But think about what this is actually confronting us with. This is the confrontation of Advent and the king that we sent to, that he is a mighty, all-powerful, glorious, and humble king who is also near and gentle and approachable. That he is both the radiance of the glory of God and the cleft of the rock that protects us from the all-consuming power of that glory. And more often than not, I think it's probably fair to say that we forget one of those two realities pretty regularly. We forget about his matchless power or we forget about his intimate nearness. And when we do, we have lost the true uniqueness of our king. Here's what I mean by that. For some of us, we might very well acknowledge Jesus to be a mighty and powerful king. But in that acknowledgement, we forget about his intimate nearness. And the consequence of that is that we think of him as this distant ruler, uninterested, unconcerned with the realities of my life, with my hurts, my struggles, my fear. We find no real joy or rest or satisfaction in him because we functionally see him the way a peasant sees an emperor. Sure, he's got power over me. He doesn't really know me, doesn't really care, doesn't have any real interest in me. And the extent to which our relationship is based solely on his might, then all we ever really see him as is someone that we have to obey, we have to submit to. And whatever meaning or fulfillment that I might find in life, I may have to go find elsewhere because there's no real finding rest in that kind of distant, powerful God. But then some of us have the reverse problem. Some of us very much see Jesus as a friend who is intimately near, who cares about my life, cares about my struggles, cares about my meaning and fulfillments in life. But then we forget that he's also a mighty, powerful, matchless king. And the consequence of that is I can just see Jesus as my buddy, someone who just wants me happy, and would never command something of me that goes against what I want or what I desire for my life. I have no fear of him, no sense of awe, no sense of obligation to submit my life in full surrender to him. I become casual and flippant and unconcerned about my sin, sin that will be judged by this mighty, powerful king one day. And my friends, both of these things are grave errors. We must see Jesus 
as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, mighty and powerful, but also the King who condescends so that we might know him, experience him, approach him. And if we don't see Jesus as both of those things at all times, then we are not seeing the true Jesus. And so my question would be, to which side do you tend to err? Because we all tend to err. And maybe different seasons of life might cause us to err in one of those two directions. But maybe even right now, which way do you find yourself maybe tending to err? To comprehend Jesus, to understand the power of this Advent season, we must see him as both the King of Kings and the King who condescends. But the one final thing that I haven't really addressed, that this psalm also speaks to, is why. Why would the King of Kings condescend, making himself accessible and known to us? Well, it is because, briefly, he's also a king of love. Let's go back to our psalm. The second half of the psalm actually shifts gears away from speaking about just the groom and actually begins to center the bride. And in particular, it begins to speak of the way the groom views the bride. I'll just give you broad strokes what's happening there. In verses 10 through 15, it shows how the king leads his bride. Then we're told in verse 11 that the king is enthralled with his bride. In verse 13, it tells us that, the, uh, that to the king, the bride is radiant before him. So if Jesus is the king, who then is this bride that Psalm 45 is speaking of? Well, probably the best uh, explanation and answer to that question is found in Ephesians 5. If you remember there, Paul, he's speaking about marriage and the relationship between a husband and a wife. But then he speaks about what that relationship is actually modeling. Let me just quickly read this for you in uh, Ephesians 5. It says, for this reason, Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so he's obviously talking there about marriage, a bride and a groom. But then in verse 32, he says this. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Here's what's fascinating. Christ is the groom, and the church is his bride. King Jesus leads his bride. King Jesus is enthralled with his bride, the church. King Jesus sees his bride, the church, as radiant and delights in her. Jesus is not only a king of power, a king of kings, a king who condescends, but he's also a king of love, who loves his people. And this love is extended to those who trust in him as their king, who leave behind their life without him and instead by faith come and trust in him, rest in him as this great and powerful king who also makes himself intimately near. And those who realize that he is both that king of kings and a king of intimate nearness, will experience him as this king of love, enthralled by his bride. And so my encouragement for all of us would be, in this season of Advent, that we would allow Advent to confront us, to confront us in the ways that we haven't seen Jesus, in the ways that we should, in the fullness of who he is, both a God of matchless power, but also a God who desires to be near, intimately near, that we might experience his love. That's my prayer for all of us. And as we now transition into um, a time of prayer of confession, 
I want to present this thought to you. For those of us, and in a moment, we're going to just take a, a few moments of reflection in silence together. But I want us to reflect specifically on the ways in which we haven't Jesus, seen Jesus in his fullest. How have we not trusted him, both as that great, mighty, powerful king, who's also a king who condescends? Do we forget about his matchless power, and so we're very flippant, very casual right, uh, about our lives and about our sin? We don't really think much about the fact that Jesus is a king who is also a judge. Or maybe, again, we have the opposite error. We understand him to be all-powerful, but we forget about his intimate nearness. And so as a result, we don't find joy in him. We don't find rest in him. We just submit because we feel like we have to, like a peasant before an emperor. To which side do we tend to err? For the next few moments, as Michael just prays, I want us to take a, a, in our own private confession to consider that question. We'll come back together for a final prayer together. Father, we thank you that as we come in faith in Jesus and as we confess the ways that we have not honored him or seen him rightly, that as we confess such things to you, repenting of this error, you are a God who is faithful to forgive, a God who is faithful to bring us back to yourself. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that are willing to be honest enough to acknowledge the ways that we have erred, that you'd meet us with encouragement now, that you're a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For this we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.